Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Connection time is officially over. No more connection for you until 11.30. You cut off. Hey, good morning, New Life Midtown. How's everyone in the house today? Good to see you guys. You're looking good. You are looking good today. Man, I missed you guys. I was out of pocket last week, and Sadron was holding it down. He's not here today, but can you guys give Sadron a big hand just in case he watches this message? That brother was holding it down. So good to have competent, anointed, skillful people to fill the pocket when you're out. And then I don't have to worry. I can just leave and be worry-free. Man, it's good to have you guys in the house today. Thanks for joining us. I have a couple of announcements, and then I have a couple of what I just feel like maybe some prophetic words that were stirring in my heart, hopefully would be for someone, and then we're going to dive right into the word, all right? So first of all, in terms of announcements, anybody who's 20 in the 20s or 30s, any 20s and 30s in the house? Let me see the 20s and 30s. So today is an annual tradition here at New Life Midtown that we've been doing over 10 years called Friendsgiving. And it's, it is amazing. It's going to be here today in this building at 530 and bring a dish to share. If you fit within that 20s to 30s age group and you want to make some friends and eat some good food and laugh and just enjoy awesome connection, then come today here at 530. All the men in the house, let me hear the men. Here we go. So uh, we're actually going to get together on the last Wednesday of November, so the Wednesday after Thanksgiving. We're going to try something new. We're going to get together at 6 p.m. We're going to share a meal together. We're going to break open the word together. We're going to pray, pray for one another, basically do what we do on Wednesday and Friday mornings, but then give us a little bit more time to expand that and go a little bit deeper one with another. And it might probably be the last time we do something like that in terms of a men's event uh, in 2022. So I encourage you guys to come on out and uh, participate with us if you can. So last Wednesday of November. This morning I was up with the Lord and I had this phrase drop in my heart and I wanted to share it with you because I, I feel like it's for everyone, but it might be for someone in particular. And the phrase very simply is this, the, f- the favor of the Father is on you. The favor of the Father is is on you. I want to just keep saying that over you. The favor of the Father is on you. And it's not because of anything you've done. It's not because you've all of a sudden started reading your Bible more. It's not because you've had a turn in your disposition. The truth of the matter is the favor of the Father has always been on you. The favor of the Father has been on you before you were ever born. The favor of the Father has been on you throughout all of eternity. For those of you who have kids, you might remember that even before your child was born and you would start looking through catalogs and you would start looking around your house and picking out colors and uh, putting things on the registry, you know what that's called? It's called favor. It's called favor. It's called anticipation and expectation that comes from a deep-seated love that manifests itself in favor. You don't have to convince me to be favorable towards my children. My heart is towards them always. I want to bless them. I love, I think about blessing them. I dream about blessing them. I imagine what it would be like taking them out to places they've never been before. We talk about favorites. Do you know why? Because the favor of the Father is on them. 
And some of you have been living in Christianity your entire life feeling like you have to earn or beg for or merit the favor of the Father. And today, I want to announce to you, I felt like the Lord dropped this in my heart. Son, tell them that my favor is on them. Father favors you. He loves you. He loves you. He's pleased with you. And he's dreaming up good things for you in Jesus' name. The second thing, there's, there's, Seth, I so appreciate you today. And I just want to affirm here in front of everyone, like you really are in the vein of the spirit. This morning, I usually have worship music on in the morning while I'm getting ready. I'm ironing my clothes. I'm doing stuff. And, and the mood of the music was, I mean, it was good. It was all right. You know, it was kind of somber. Was, you know, intimate. I've been in this intimacy phase for months. So I've been going through and creating my intimacy playlists, you know. But I felt like the Lord was like, oh, this is sleepy, bro. I need you to put some joy music on. <laughs> and literally what I felt was, son, you're, you're in a new season. You're in a new season. And so I just went back. Like, whenever I feel like the Lord tell me I'm in a new season, I got a playlist for a new season. It's Israel New Breed, Cornerstone Church, Bishop Michael Pitts' church. And it's, he sings, it's a new season. And I just put that junk on repeat. And I just get my spirit in alignment, and I just prophesy to myself, it's a new season. It's a new season. But I felt in my spirit that that's not just for me, that that's for someone in the house or for some group of people in the house. And as Christy was exhorting us, what dropped into me literally was this, that for some of you, the page has been turned, and the chapter is over. The chapter of your mourning and the chapter of grief and the chapter of lament, and the chapter of disappointment, the chapter of shame, it's over. That chapter is done. And you're stepping into a brand new chapter. And then I, I sense this. For some of you, you know how there are certain books, they're like chronicles, where like there's a book and there's like three or four books, there's a trilogy or whatever. Like for some of you, the entire book of that season, the book, not just the chapter, the book has been closed. And God is opening up a new book. Step into it. Let him author a new chapter and a new book for your life. The season of grief, it served its purpose. All, we could go into that. But the thing that you need to hear today and receive is there is a new chapter the Lord is writing for you. Amen. Amen. And can I just read this verse over you? I didn't give it to Everett. I want you to hear this. It's in Isaiah 61. Beginning in verse 1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I didn't even know this was in here when I heard that word this morning. But this, this verse, Isaiah 61, Christy was exhorting and it was Isaiah 61 to proclaim to you the year of the Lord's favor. Friend, in Christ, you are ever favored. So I am proclaiming to you. I'm trying to be faithful to the word today, and I am proclaiming that you are favored. And by the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. And this is, this is the phrase that just hit me in worship. The oil of joy instead of mourning. The Lord is pouring out the oil of joy instead of mourning on your life. Can you just receive that today? I'm going to pray for you as I pray over the word. In the name of Jesus, I just declare today, oh God, that your word is good and it's sure and it's true and it's right. 
And Father, I pray that for any of us in this room that need a fresher or a deeper revelation of your favor, let it come. By the revelation and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, God, I pray that we would choose, we would dare to believe that our primary and our sole identity is in the fact that we are beloved and favored sons and daughters of God. And Father, I pray today that for any of us who've been in a season of mourning or a season of loss or a season of shame or a season of brokenness or a season of being stuck, God, I declare today that there is a new season upon you and there's a new season upon this house and that, the, and that the Lord is pouring out the oil of gladness, the oil of joy. Let it be so today, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. amen. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Welcome to all of you who are new in the house. We're so delighted to have you. We pray the Lord meet you in so many ways today. We've been on a series in the book of 1 Timothy. And sadly, uh, we just have one more message in the book of 1 Timothy. And it's next week. So I have the massive assignment and burden of choosing between chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6 to narrow down next week's message. But today we're going to be reading here out of 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to invite you to join me in verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. This is, even this is the word of the Lord. Amen. And all the men said, right? I, I'm, all the men said, it's a trap. <laughs> be careful. And, all, and, and, and all the women said, what the? Yeah. Wow. A couple of weeks ago, we were listening to the Bible on audio as we were driving to school with the kids, we're pulling up right past Voyager, right as we pass New Life. We're about to turn right onto Voyager. And the author of the audio Bible who reads this passage ends, I push pause, and Milan goes, mm-mm, Paul, I disagree with you. <laughs> and I leaned in. We had about five more minutes left in our drive until I dropped him off. And I said, tell me about that, babe. Why is that? And she said, it just doesn't seem right. I don't know, like... That's confusing. And I said, absolutely, it is. And I said, and I'm really glad that you vocalized that. I want you, my daughter, to have permission in this space to say, Dad, that doesn't set right with my spirit. I'm not really sure I understand that. is, is, Is there something more that's going on? And the thing that I want to announce to you today very simply is that whenever you experience or whenever you touch confusion or dissonance in the scriptures, it's an invitation to come closer. It's an invitation to explore. There are so many things that are written in the scriptures that are invitations to discover and to explore the heart and the character and the nature of God that he is trying to lay out 
for us. I want you to think about the fact that the Bible was written at a different time. It was written in different languages. It was written by different authors. Each of them had a different reason why they were writing it. And it was written over a span of 1,500 years. And we are 2,000 years removed from that process. Think about how much language has changed. Think about how much context matters in understanding what's really going on. So today, we're going to just drill down on a singular issue. We're going to ask and we're going to answer and we're going to address the issue of women in leadership and women in authority in the church. And for years, I framed this as women in ministry, but it's not women in ministry. That's not the issue. I think throughout the United States, historically, we would say, oh, it's fine for women to minister. The issue is, do women have the permission and the authority of God to exercise their God-given gifts that God has given to them? You know, Jeremiah 1.5 applies to women as well. That before they were in their mother's womb, God knew them. That God dreamed about them. That God was opening up doors of opportunity for them. That God created good works in advance for the female counterpart of humanity to walk in before they were ever put in their mother's womb. And so the issue today is, is Paul establishing a universal mandate or is he speaking to a specific situation? There's essentially two positions on this issue and those two positions are based on two interpretations. All right, so the question is, can women speak? Can they teach? Can they preach the word of God in a public setting? And can they exercise authority in a position, particularly in the context of the church? The position that says no, says women cannot have authority. This is based on an understanding that C text as Paul is making a universal statement for all women in all churches at all times. And some of you may have experienced that. This is the restrictive Position. This believes that Paul is restricting women in all circumstances and all cultures from teaching men or having authority over them or exercising any role of authority in the context of a church. The second position says, yes, women can have authority. And this is based on the understanding, again, that Paul is universal mandate. He's speaking to a specific situation in time. He's speaking to a specific church that has something very unique and particular that is operating within this church. And Paul is saying, there's something that's off here, and I want to speak to it, Timothy, and I want you to correct it because I'm not there. Remember, confusion in the scripture is an invitation to... And when we come across something that we don't understand, typically there's three responses that we can make. Number one, we can dismiss it outright without question. You ever experienced that? Come across something, you're like, I really don't have time to dig into that. I'm just going to dismiss that. For years, I just had no interest in studying eschatology. I went to Oral Roberts University, and one of the kind of favorite pastimes of kids that were in the theology department is they want to argue eschatology, and I just had no interest in that. I was like, y'all don't know when Jesus is coming back. Why are y'all, why are y'all arguing at me? Why are y'all raising your voices and getting all emotional about when Jesus said no one knows the day or the time? So I just, I just dismissed it. I'm like, I'm not even going to study that. And for years, I had the luxury of dismissing this text. Part of that's because I'm a half-white male in Western America, and and this didn't apply to me. And so I just was like, ah, I'm just going to just read by that. 
I didn't dig, I didn't, ex- I didn't explore, I didn't inquire. The second tendency that we have is to embrace something without question, right? And this is what's called the literal view of Scripture or the literal interpretation of Scripture. And, and let me just caution you, we have to be careful whenever we take what are called literal or wooden interpretations of the Scripture, Without careful understanding, utilizing multiple disciplines to understand exactly what the scripture was speaking to in its unique situation in life. Otherwise, every one of us will run around with our own literal interpretation, not understanding that every single one of us brings something to the text. You bring your story, you bring your education. You bring your predispositions, you bring your presuppositions, you bring belief systems that you didn't even realize that you had based on when you were born, based on where you were born, based on who you were born to, based on whether you were male or female, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, how much money you do or don't have. All of those things affect what you are bringing in your lens on how you interpret the text of Scripture. And if we're not willing to acknowledge that, we're already starting off on the wrong foot on how we come to the Bible. A couple of things I want to acknowledge very, very quickly before we come in to the text is every one of us are going to hear this message from different places today. Some of us, by mere mention of me reading this scripture, you are hearing this and it's touching a nerve of pain in your life. Some of you have personally, whether it's here in the room or those of you who are listening online, some of you hear this and it is bringing up literal post-traumatic stress because of how this has been used and utilized to abuse and to marginalize and to discount and to shut down your voice as women. And if that's you today, I sincerely want to say that I'm sorry. Personally, I'm sorry. And on behalf of New Life Midtown, I want you to know how deeply grieved we are with you. And I am fighting and praying and believing for your absolute 100 restoration of your voice and your role and your function and your authority without inhibition, without prohibition, and without limitation. Some of you are in this room and you're hearing this and, and, and it might be confusing to you. And part of that might be because there are people that you love and there are people that you respect who might hold a position on this that is confusing because I love these people and I respect these people, but they're sharing something as gospel to me, and it doesn't quite sit right, but I love these people and I trust these people. And listen, you need to understand that there are numerous positions in the Scripture. There are numerous issues in the Scripture that people on both sides of the issue, they love God deeply. They're endeavoring to read the Scripture rightly. And with everything inside of them, they want to live faithfully. And it's really easy for us to assume that anybody who has a different position or an alternative or opposing position, it's easy to demonize those people. And let me just say, that's the way of the world. That's the way of this culture. Part of why God allows so much mystery and so much tension is that he allows that for us to lean into him, but also to lean into one another. I can't tell you how many times Christy and I have seen an issue differently, whether that be toothpaste or toilet paper or dishes, right? We see it differently. And if I approach that and say, oh my God, are you kidding me? Like, this is the only way to roll toothpaste. You're out of your mind. And like, all that does is it hurts her. It makes me look like an idiot and it breaks down our relationship. 
But if I lean in and I realize, A, there might be a different way than the way that I think things should be done. B, this really isn't that important. Right? And I think that we've got to take that posture into the way that we wrestle with confusing and seemingly opposing issues in the scriptures. Some of us are here today and you might hear where I'm leaning and where I'm going and you might be automatically resistant or maybe a little suspicious. And friends, I want you to know I empathize with that. Like I've been walking closely with the Lord for 30 years of my life and there's been things that I was die hard on that I've had to change and go back on over the course of my 30 years. There are things that I held to be as doctrinal truth and that they were gospel and no one can move me and just life and experience and time and maturity and humility and the grace of God and the charitable work of theology and being exposed to other positions and other perspectives, I see things differently now. And I just want to acknowledge that sometimes like faith can be, it can feel like a house of cards. Your faith is strengthened a number of ways. Your faith is strengthened through your experience in God. Your faith is strengthened by revelation that God brings to you through his word, by his spirit. But your faith is also strengthened when you allow it to be tested. And taking issues that you don't understand and seeking them out and asking hard questions is a way of testing your faith and testing your belief systems. Are you hearing me today? So I want to encourage those of you who might be a little, you might be a little afraid. Like, Pastor, I'm afraid to go into these spaces. I want you to know the Lord is with you. And I want you to know there is grace for your journey. There's a number of ways that I've been thinking about how to get into this conversation. What's the angle here, Lord? And so the way I want to attack this or approach this today is I want to approach this from the angle of tools of interpretation. Tools of interpretation. My very first class at ORU in 1995, my very first theology class was a class called hermeneutics, which very simply means the biblical tools of interpretation. How do we interpret what has been written in different cultures and different contexts over the course of 1,500 years? And the first thing that Donald Vance said to me as an 18-year-old boy, 17-year-old actually at the time, was there, you have to allow your faith, things that you held, deeply, deeply held beliefs, you have to have enough courage in God to allow those things to be scrutinized and examined. And on the other side of that, your faith will be stronger. But the way that we understand the scriptures is by learning how to utilize tools. And there are numerous different tools, and I'm going to give you just a handful of them today. The first tool is this. Understand that every letter was written with a purpose. And we talked about that to some degree a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to go into too much redundancy over that. But I want to remind us that there are two explicit reasons that Paul is writing 1 Timothy. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 3, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Again, we talked about this two weeks ago, but Paul explicitly says that I am writing you, Timothy, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. And what I didn't go into great depth is I didn't talk about what those false doctrines were. Paul alludes to three different types of false doctrines there in First and Second Timothy. The second reason he's writing this is found in chapter 3. 
1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. This is his second explicit reason on why he's writing this letter to Timothy. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, and he was, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. I'm writing you so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in the church. I'm writing you, Timothy, because people are conducting themselves in a way that is not becoming of people of God. I am writing you because the way that men are treating women and women are treating men and the way that they are utilizing the corporate worship space is not healthy. It's divisive. It's destructive. And it's looking poorly on who God is. So, Timothy, I'm writing you these things so that you can bring uh, correction to the behavior that is coming out of the belief systems that people have because of their false doctrines. All right, tool number two. Tool number two, question seeming contradictions thoughtfully. Question seeming contradictions thoughtfully. What do do I mean by that? As you read the scriptures, you're going to come across things that feel like or seem like they're contradicting themselves. And I hope that when you read this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 through 15, I hope that there are certain things that you're like, well, wait a minute, Paul, you're going back on things that you said earlier in your other letters. Let me just read a couple of questions here for you very simply. Why does Paul address the issue of women in leadership from a seeming negative position here, but he doesn't write that to all the other churches? He doesn't write that in the letter to the Ephesians. He doesn't write that in Colossians, Thessalonians. There's a verse that he mentions in 2 Corinthians that requires further examination, but he's not writing this to the church at large. Why is that? That's a healthy question that should invite us in. Why does Paul say, I want women to fill in the blank and not I command women? Notice that. Then listen to the language there. Paul is essentially saying, hey, Timothy, if it were up to me and you're consulting me on the matter, I want you to know my preference is This is the wisdom in the matter. But he doesn't say this is something authoritative that God is telling me to tell to you as it relates to how women relate in the church. Number three, is there a difference between quietly and silently? Different translations render this verse differently. And again, this has been weaponized. We're going to get into this a little bit more deeply here in a minute. But there is a massive difference between learning quietly and and keep your mouth shut. Number four, if salvation comes by grace through faith, which it does, salvation comes by grace through faith, is Paul now creating a different set of rules for women? Like everybody else, you're saved by grace, but women, you got to have babies. (laughs) So what's the implication of that for women who are barren? What's the implication for that for single women? I mean, guys, this ought, to, this ought to invite us in. This ought to confuse us and ought to disturb us a little bit. Why does Paul seem to be breaking with the overarching trajectory of Scripture? Not just in the things that he has written, specifically in Galatians chapter 3, where Paul says there is now in Christ no longer male, nor female, nor Jew, nor Greek, nor circumcised or uncircumcised. Like Paul said that this is a part of his theological doctrine that in Christ, that God has removed those distinctions in a healthy way as it relates to what we receive from God in salvation and how we're empowered to live out our Christian life. And he's also breaking trajectory with what is in the entirety of Scripture. Let's go to that here for just a few minutes. And 
I don't have time to lean into all of this, but here's the next tool for interpretation. You must utilize the entire counsel of God. I want you to think about how utterly... There's so many words that are running through the range of my vocabulary right now, but the one I'm just going to pull out for the time being is, I want you to think about how utterly destructive and damaging it has been that we have created a doctrine that has silenced the voice of the counterpart of humanity for centuries based on one verse. One verse. And that one verse runs in contradiction to the entire counsel of God. Let's begin in Genesis chapter 1. We'll visit a gal by the name of Eve. Genesis 1.27, I'm just going to rattle these off. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now let me just take a moment to lean in on this. Man alone, male, males alone cannot and will not and do not reflect the full glory of God. Females alone cannot, do not, will not reflect the full glory of God. The only way that the full image of God is revealed to the cosmos and to the creation, the created order, is when male and female operating together in the fullness of their, oh, the fullness of their beloved identity. When they're walking as God has created them to walk in mutual submission, honor, love, trust, and respect of one another, celebrating each other, championing one another, you know what happens? All of a sudden, the entire created order goes, there's God. Y'all, 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 I got got about five hours worth of stuff in me. But the, but the revelation that you got to understand here is this, that as long as a man stays in competition with a woman or a woman stays in competition with a man, we are robbing the created order of seeing God. And it's laced with insecurity, control, manipulation, and fear. Let's visit a gal by the name of Miriam in Exodus chapter 15, verse 20. Then Miriam, the prophet, this is the scriptures, Exodus chapter 15, Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. The scripture calls Miriam a prophet. There's a guy by the name of Deborah in the book of Judges. Deborah, in Judges chapter 4, verse 4 through 9. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. I really don't have to go much further than that. Deborah, a prophet, leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. So she had wisdom. She had the ability to judge authoritatively. She had the ability to make decisions with the counsel and the understanding of God. And the entire nation recognized it and received from her. Verse 6, she sent for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and she said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go and take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Cicero, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said, If you go with me, Deborah, female leader of Israel, my uh, parentheses, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I will not go. This is her general. This is the general of the commanding armies of Israel who says to Deborah, I need you to go with me. 
There's something that you're carrying from an authority and a grace and an anointing standpoint. Your presence is going to strengthen and validate the assignment of the Lord on my hands. As it should. I'm telling you, I'm not complete without this woman in the room. And I'm just a little fired up because this is the first Sunday that we've been together in the same room in four weeks, y'all. I'm excited. All right, I'm, I'm going to fast forward here. I could talk about Hannah. I could talk about Ruth. I could talk about Esther. Time's eluding me. I could talk about, let's just fast forward to the New Testament. And let's talk about this young teenage girl by the name of Mary, whom the angel shows up to, Gabriel. And we're going to get there in Advent. By the way, Advent's two weeks away, y'all, so be preparing your heart. It's already here. It's upon us, right? But the angel shows up to Mary. The angel doesn't show up to Joseph. And here's what the angel says. Would you be willing to carry God for me? But I can think of no greater assignment that Mary is the forerunner of what it, of every Christian. Y'all going to catch that later in the week. <laughs> that Mary becomes a first fruit and a prototype. Mary becomes the pattern of what every Christian life is to be, which means that we are carriers of God. Mary, will you, I'm going to trust you to carry me in you. I'm going to trust you to raise my son. I'm going to trust you to not only look after him physically and protect him and nurse him and feed him, clothe him and bathe him, but instruct him in the counsel and the ways and the word of God. And by the way, I didn't run this by a man. I'm coming to you directly. There's a gal by the name of Mary Magdalene. You may remember her for some of her sinful and sexual past. I choose to remember her as the first evangelist after the resurrection. Mary Magdalene, despite all the demons that were chased out of her and despite all of her poor and broken and irresponsible decisions, Jesus chooses her to be the first human being to carry the message of the gospel to the apostles. In other words, she was an apostle to the apostles. The word apostle very simply means to be a messenger. And, and Peter was there. Guys, Peter showed up to the tomb. John was there. Jesus could have chose whoever he wanted to be the carrier of the message of the gospel. Can you imagine the immaculate privilege of being the first human being from your lips? How beautiful are the feet of those who carry good news. Mary Magdalene, your feet are beautiful, sweetie, because you opened up your mouth and you stayed and you waited until Jesus revealed himself. And when he did, out of that personal, intimate encounter with the living, resurrected Christ, you carried the gospel. Book of Acts tells us that Philip had four daughters who prophesied. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he quotes the prophet Joel and he says that I'm going to pour out my spirit on, say it with me, all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Amen. Romans 16, chapter, one, ch- ch- uh, chapter 16, verse 1 tells us that Phoebe was a deaconess. And what I didn't understand until I got into this is that Phoebe was the letter carrier of the letter of Romans to the church of Rome. And here's the implication of that. It means that, number one, she had a close relationship with Paul, that he saw her as a co-worker in the field of ministry, and that when she takes the letter to the church at Rome, she's the one who's been tasked with reading it and exegeting it 
for people who didn't understand what the heck uh, Paul was. I wish Phoebe was here for me today. I still don't understand some of the things that Paul was saying. The most theologically dense letter in the entire New Testament, Paul entrusts into the hands of a woman to explain to the church at Rome, this is what Paul meant. She was his benefactor. She was his co-worker. She was a deaconess. And she also stood up and she taught the letter of Romans to the church at Rome. Later on in chapter 16, verse 7, we find out that Junia is an apostle. Paul says, Greet Adronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who are in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. Junia was an apostle, and she's suffering for the faith. And yet we dismiss that because she's a woman. Here's what John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, bishop of Constantinople, said in the early fourth century. He says, to be an apostle is something great, but to be outstanding among the apostles, just think what a wonderful song of praise that is. They were outstanding on the basis of their works and virtuous actions. Indeed, how great the wisdom of this woman must have been that she was deemed worthy of the title of apostle. He goes on later to say, for an honor we have, we as men, in that there are such women, such women, like Junia and like the women of the early church among us. But we, as men, we are put to shame in that we men are left so far behind them for the women of those days were more spirited than lions. Friends, this is not a competition. I am better when my wife and my daughter and the women of this house are fully who they are. That's right. I don't, I don't have to put them in their place or keep them in their place. I need them. I need you. I need you. I need your voice. This house, your family, the culture, Midtown, new life at large, the kingdom of God needs your voice and your authority. Let's go to the next rule of interpretation. You have to understand the situation in life. So we're going to drill down a little bit here, and we're going to bring some clarity to some of these confusing texts. There's a phrase in biblical hermeneutics called sitzemleben. It's a German phrase that means situation in life. What was the situation in life that Paul was writing to? And this is what we're going to try to get into. We're going to click this into focus. What was happening in Ephesus? What what, What was Timothy dealing with? In the people. We're going to go really, really fast here. Number one, we're going to talk about historical Ephesus. Historical Ephesus. Ephesus was a very economic port city. They, they opened up the entire region of Asia. So they were on the coast, so they could receive things from the port. And they built immaculate structures to the Roman gods and goddesses that were there. I wish I had time, but I'm going to give you a homework assignment. This is found in Acts chapter 19, verse 23 through 35. And what you'll find here is there's a riot in Ephesus because there's a metal worker, a guy by the name of Demetrius. Anybody remember this story? There's a metal worker who makes shrines to the goddess Artemis. And what he does is he comes and he convinces, he stirs up this this mob and he creates a riot because so much of the industry and the trade of that time was based on idolatry to the goddess Artemis. 
And so this, this iron worker, this metal worker is like, hey, if this guy rolls around and keeps saying that idols are wrong and there's only one true God, we're going to be all out of business. So read Acts chapter 19 and read Acts chapter 19 to understand how prominent the figure of Artemis is in Ephesian culture at that time. Very, very, very important. The goddess, the goddess Artemis was the most powerful divinity. She was the ruling principality of that area. She was the ruling principality of that region. And historically and mythologically, she was known as two things, the goddess of the hunt and the goddess of childbearing. That's going to be very important here in a couple of verses, the goddess of childbearing. And she's not the goddess, let me just say this now, she's not the goddess of childbearing as in a good midwife who's trying to, you know. She was the goddess of midwifery and childbearing in the sense that she determined whether or not a baby and or its mom would live. And remember, we're talking about demonic entities here. So this entire, one of the, the, the leading causes of death amongst women and human beings at that time was childbirth. So already, physiologically, there's a lot of fear around this sensitive and vulnerable moment in a woman's life. And then you couple that with a prevailing, ruling, demonic principality who has deemed herself to be the goddess of childbearing who's going to determine whether or not your baby lives or dies. Again, we're going to talk about that here in a minute. Um, so the, the cult of Artemis is really what I want to lean in on because I think understanding the cult of Artemis is the key that unlocks understanding to what Paul is talking about. The cult of Artemis was massive. Her cult was run entirely by female officials, and it was the ruling religious center of the entire order. Look at this right here. This is the temple of Artemis. Let me pull that picture up. It's known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, you have to understand, guys, this right here was built, this right here was built before Jesus was born. So we're not in AD, we're in the BC era. All of that right there is marble. That structure is massive. And it was put together by the hands of people that built that out of worship to the goddess Artemis. All right, the women in the cult, let's just read more here. The women of the cult depicted in extra biblical literature, they are assertive. They are competitive, they are vocal, they're intelligent, they're educated, they're well-versed in their religion, they recite prayers, they serve piously and fiercely, and they compete with one another to have the highest-ranking religious roles. And their roles are distinguished by their clothes. All right, this, let's, okay. A summary here of the situation in life. Paul was addressing a situation in Ephesus where powerful and influential women were coming out of the Artemis cult and into the church. Like when you go back and you read Acts chapter 19, what you find is revival hits Ephesus. Do you remember that verse where it says that people were coming, like sorcerers were coming and they were taking their scrolls and they were burning them in the marketplace? That's Ephesus. So Ephesus already has this high like, spiritual milieu about it. And God is invading Ephesus. So much so that people that are steeped in sorcery and witchcraft start repenting. Some of those people that are burning their scrolls and coming out of the Artemis cult, they find themselves 
in the network of house churches in Ephesus that Paul is addressing when he's writing Timothy. So in doing so, the women were then taking up teaching roles, leadership roles, and they did not have proper training. They didn't have instruction. They were being domineering. They were stubborn. They were teaching heresy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. And all the while, they're refusing to accept and receive instruction. Let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2 now, and let's reread the passage. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but to adorn themselves with good deeds. So let's go through a very quick list of the characteristics, again, of those that were in the Artemis cult. It was an all-female cult. Number two, they displayed their wealth by how they dressed. This is why Paul is saying, I don't want you to be decked out with all your drippy swag and pearls and gold. Like, like calm down on all that. Like, seriously, like, calm down on all of that. And here's why. Because women, and we've weaponized this. We've weaponized this assuming that somehow, like, hey, no makeup and dressing frumpy. And, like, somehow that's, like, you know, like, religiously acceptable. Like, guys, let me just, just expose the, the utter error of that. All right? So if, if, if the same God that could speak to David and say that man looks on the outside appearance, but God looks on the heart, that God didn't change from the God in Ephesus. Are you hearing me today? So women displayed wealth by their dress, and they displayed their wealth so that they could advertise their social status. Women dressed like Artemis. Essentially what was going on is women dressed like this because they were doing it. They were trying to look like Artemis. And they were trying to bring their best so that they could elevate their social status within the cult of Artemis. And here's what's really fascinating. Look back here at verse 9. I want the women to dress modestly, decency, propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles. What are you talking about? Well, here's what he's talking about. Let's, let's take a look at our homegirl Artemis real quick. You see that right there? That's Artemis. Her hair was braided. This word right here, adorning with elaborate hairstyles, it's only used once in the entire New Testament. It's here. Because Paul's speaking to something very, very specific. He's talking about the way that the goddess Artemis would wear her hair in pleated braids. And they were bringing this, and I want you to think about this too. Like, and y'all women, y'all help me out here. Like to, like, to do your hair up like that, can you do that by yourself? But you can't do that by yourself. It takes time and it takes the help of someone else. And women in the Greco-Roman world had slaves who were wealthy who could help them do that with their hair. Are you connecting dots? And Paul is saying, listen, stop looking like Artemis and bring your good deeds into the house of the Lord. All right. Let let me go on, and I'm going to just apply pressure here to the part that I think really, really matters for the sake of discussion today, and that's in the next couple of verses. Let's reread verses 11 through 12. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. All right, let's, let's break each one of these things down because every single one of these words, every single one of them are points of contention. That if you dig a little bit, historically and grammatically and culturally, you see that there is actually something different that Paul is addressing. Number one, he says a woman should learn. And this actually ran counter to Greco-Roman culture. He's breaking norms and he's saying, I want women to learn. 
You know what the best way to hold people in oppression is? It's ignorance. It's ignorance. Right, so like, yeah, it makes sense to say, oh, what, you know, what, men are smarter and men are less prone to deception and men are yada, 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 and men have all the authority. But look, don't let those women read. Like, don't give those women an opportunity to start actually using their God-given minds and start thinking for themselves. Like, the way that you maintain power and oppressive rule is to keep people ignorant. And we have done it. As the Christian church, we have exempted women from entering into seminaries for, di- for centuries, church. A woman, should, a woman should learn. This is in the imperative. It's a command. I want women to learn. Let's look at the next ver- uh, words here. In quietness and submission. Some translations use the word silence. I don't think it's the best word used here. And this is where a wooden and literal rendering of the word silent has been used to enforce the notion that women should not speak at all. He's saying that the posture in which we learn should be a posture of quietness, right? Not in boastful, arrogant, preposterous. Remember, these are elite women who are used to having teaching roles of authority. And now they're coming into another environment and they're assuming and presuming. I taught there. I should be able to teach here. But remember, according to our message two weeks ago, that false doctrine is running rampant through the church. And he's saying, listen, listen, ladies, ladies, ladies. This is what Paul's saying. You're going to teach. But right now is the season to unlearn Artemis, learn the apostolic teaching, and when you're ready, you're going to teach again. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that all women at all time in every church throughout until Jesus comes back should remain silent and keep their place in the church of God. Full submission. What does he mean by full submission? This language, exactly, it means teachable. And this is the same instruction that Paul gives to both men and women. And more importantly, it's the same instruction that Jesus gives to men and women. This is the posture of discipleship. This language was not unique to women. It was unique to students and disciples. The word actually means rest. Remember when Jesus says, hey, remember, Jesus says, hey, come and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. For I am gentle and lowly of heart. Do you guys remember this? I need a little bit of help in the room. He's saying that the posture of discipleship is entering into a submitted spirit. You and I cannot be disciples if we're constantly bucking against, like like a teenage child. Mm, I don't know about that, Dad. I don't know. That's what my friends say. I didn't see that on Twitter. I don't know, man. TikTok. He's like, let's stop stop clapping back and just enter into the yoke and rest. I've got good thoughts for you, all right? You that's, that's what full submission is. Okay, I do not permit. This, is, this, is, this right here is brilliant. Because the language in the Greek here is what's called a present active indicative. It's not a present active imperative. Let me translate. It means right now, I'm not permitting this right now. He's saying, Timothy, listen, because of what they've come out of, right now... I don't think it's best for these people, for these ladies to be teaching for now. Not forever, 
But for now, because it's a present active indicative, if it were a present active imperative, it would read like this. Timothy, don't let those women teach. That's an imperative. Timothy, women should not teach. Timothy, I'm commanding you to command them to never allow them to teach. That's the imperative. Gordon Fee says it like this. But read from the viewpoint of later generations, how significant is it that Paul does not issue a command such as do not permit women to teach? Women must not have authority. Theologically, it may be significant to observe that the Holy Spirit could have led Paul to use an imperative construction instead of Let me read this again just so we're catching this. The Holy Spirit could have led Paul to use an imperative word that could be interpreted as binding for the church to follow for all time. But instead, the Holy Spirit leads Paul to use a a construction that describes his practice without making it permanently binding. All right, let's take a look at this phrase that says, assume authority. What does this mean? What is Paul talking about? Assume authority. This is a very interesting word right here because it's only, again, used once in the entire New Testament. Now, the concept of authority is seen all over the place. Those of you guys who have been with me from Antioch for years, you know I teach on power versus authority. The word there is exousia. Exousia is where we get the word executive or to execute. You know what it means? It means to have permission to exercise power. All right? Authority, I've given you authority to cast out devils and to trample on snakes and scorpions, right? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's not this word. This word is authentane, used once in the New Testament, only used a couple of times in extra biblical literature. And when it's used, it's always used negatively. And the literal rendering of the word means to use physical force to coerce someone aggressively to follow your line of thinking. So what is Paul saying? He's saying these prosperous, wealthy, elite women who held positions of power in the cult of Artemis who are now taking that to bully people around in the small house churches of the Christian way. Paul is saying, listen, they're abusing their authority by coercing other people. And Timothy, you've got to put a stop to this. All right. I've got to stop here by the, because of time but I think I've probably given you enough to at least think. Given you enough to think. Here's, I want to do two things. Number one, I want to leave the invitation wide open. There are some of you who might have delved deeply into those who have written a counterpart to this, and I'm happy to have those discussions. I think we should have forums. I think we should have roundtables. I think that we should keep this conversation up because of the social implication that it has on the church and society at large. And... Again, I'm going to say it again, because we are not complete without the voice and the authority and the leadership of women of God in this house. So I welcome the conversation. The second thing I'd like to do, and if I could have Aaron come on up right now, is I want to pray for the women in the house. And um, I I, I was going to tee this up by saying, you you know, if if you've been hurt and blah, blah, blah. Listen, what, what has like hung over the Christian church historically, has touched every female on the planet. And so if, if, if you feel like you can be in alignment and agreement, I'm going to bless you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take things off of you. And if you feel like you can agree with that, ladies, I'd like for you to stand this morning. I want to pray for you.
Go ahead, Aaron. I want to tee this up by saying this. The moment my daughter entered into the world, my entire life changed. And I didn't know it at that moment, but I was forced to pay attention to 1 Timothy 2 in a way I never had before. I leaned over to Milan right before I went up. I said, babe, this message is for you. This matters. This matters for every little girl. I want you to imagine, man, I want you to hear me and I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine a little girl growing up and in her own intimate relationship with God, feeling the call of God to teach and to preach, studying the scriptures, picking up tattered theological books wherever she could find them, applying to a seminary and then finding out that she's not allowed in because of her gender. And if you think I'm making that up, I'm not because that has happened over and over and over again throughout history. Being overlooked because they weren't a man, better qualified, more articulate, more skilled, more passion, overlooked. Callings from God completely discounted because they were female. Voices being stripped in the home, in the marriage, in the boardroom because they're women. Friends, this is an injustice and it begins in the church of the living God. God today, right now, I wanna begin by saying that, that I and who and what I represent in terms of the church of New Life Midtown, God, I stand before you. And Lord, I repent to you and I repent to these women today for any and every way, oh God, whether it be consciously or subconsciously, whether it had been maliciously or ignorantly, that we have marginalized and silenced and that we have edged out your daughters from the seat of power, that we have edged them out of their counsel, that we have silenced their voice or that we have twisted their voice or perverted their voice or diverted their voice. Father, I wanna apologize to you and to them today for any way that Lord, that we have closed the door of opportunity for them to advance why we have closed the door of opportunity for them to grow in their leadership or to grow in their authority. I wanna to apologize to you and to them for all the wayward comments, God. Isn't that sweet? Oh, God bless their soul. For all the ways, God, that we have caused them to second guess themselves. For all the ways that we have made them uh, sublim- subliminally or subversively think, maybe there's something wrong with me. That I'm more prone to deception I can't trust my instinct. I can't trust my relationship with you. Maybe I'm not called. Maybe I'm not good enough. And today, God, I pray that you would rip that off of every woman in this house, both now and forever, God. Any woman that comes into this place, Lord, I pray that they would walk into a clean atmosphere and they would walk into a clean environment. And God, I'm asking that you would help us to be a house that activates and champions and celebrates the women of God, the daughters of God that are in this house. And right now, I just, I just feel this right now. If you feel called to preach, I want you to come up here in the front. If you feel called to teach the scriptures, if you feel called to preach the scriptures, I want you to come right up here to the front. And I want, I want everybody who has faith and agreement to just stretch forth your hands. Guys, this is a holy moment right here. And I think this is probably the most important thing that we do today. This is the assignment on the house today. I say yes, and 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 I say yes, 
and I say yes to you and yes to you and yes to you and I say yes and I say yes, Milan, get up here. I say yes and I say yes and I say yes and I say yes. God, in the name of Jesus, I pray you take the lid off. Father, I pray that you go back to every memory, every moment, every experience that has hindered them. God, that has sowed seeds of fear or intimidation or manipulation in their hearts or their minds or their imagination. And I pray you uproot it. I pray, God, I rebuke every religious spirit right now. I rebuke every religious spirit right now, God, that would lie to them, that would twist and entangle their heart, their emotions, and their desire in God. God, I I just, I rebuke it. And I rip it off of them right now, God. And Father, I just declare the yes and amen of heaven. Lord, that we see this and we affirm this. And God, I just echo and I reinforce and I revalidate that we need the voice and we need the revelation. We need your tenderness. We need your wit, your humor. We need your insight. We need your understanding. We need your experience. We need your personality. We need your femininity. We need it. The body of Christ is desperate for it. We need your anointing. You don't have to sound like another man. You don't have to sound smart and eloquent. Be you. Be you. I give you the permission to be you in the name of Jesus. God, I thank you that you've anointed and that you've called these women. And Father, I pray that according to the spirit of this word, that in rest and receptivity, that in submission and trust, that these women would enter into the yoke of discipleship and that you would teach them, that you would bring revelation to them, that you would open up the mysteries of the scriptures to them, that you would give them an edge, that you would give them an anointing, that you would give them an authority, God, that is good, that is pure. God, that when it's time for them to be bold, they'll be bold without second-guessing themselves in the name of Jesus. How am I being seen? How am I being perceived? Am I going on? Am I I doing too much? Am I being too bold? God, I pray right now that you would loose them from that today in the name of Jesus. And God, I pray this right now over our daughters, and I pray this over our sisters, and I pray this over every woman who walks into this space, that we carry this with grace and with beauty, that we carry this, God, with humility and with strength, with strength. I bless you to be strong in the strong of the Lord, in the strength of the Lord. And I pray this today in the name of Jesus. Come on, give these women a hand today. We love you.